being human is hard and we're all sort of a mystery unto ourselves. For me, I think the challenge is holding on to a cohesive self. I'm amazed at people who just have this persona and it's so them because I'm still learning who that is through the writing, through the work. This week, I have a conversation with writer Nada Alec, and I really love this one. She's great, and you're about to hear for yourself, but if you haven't already read her book or heard about her book, it's called Bad Thoughts, and it's a book of stories, and she's currently working on a forthcoming novel that I'm excited to read the second I can. And you'll hear me gush about her and her work momentarily in the interview portion of this program. But just know now, I I truly loved this. We recorded it a couple weeks ago and I had to reschedule and she was so nice about that. And then finally, when we were going to record it, it was the height of the heat wave and we were going to do it at my apartment. And we switched to her apartment because of my AC situation that doesn't really work well and is very loud. And she was so gracious and cool about all of it and flexible. And I was really looking forward to speaking with her because I genuinely loved her book so much. And, you know, not just me, it was a New York Times editor's pick and it's been included in The Cut and Nylon and Harbor's Bazaar and so many others. And I was, you know, excited and a bit nervous for this conversation and Nada basically welcomed me in in the morning and I left her house in the afternoon, the late afternoon, we hung out for about an hour or two before we started recording. And then we recorded for another three hours. She had another interview that you'll hear, but she was so gracious and cool about pushing that one off. I missed a doctor's appointment and like it was just sort of this fever dream of getting to know her. And and I'm so happy that some of it's recorded because when I went back to listen to it, I found her so comforting to listen to and so wise and, you know, incredibly humble and clearly creative. And I wanted to keep listening to her. So I figured you might as well. So I'm splitting this into two parts. So today you'll hear the first half of our conversation where we talk about everything from our first communions and lingering Catholicism guilt within us and shadow integration. And it's truly a winding conversation. Just really quickly, if you want to join in process, it is available to you if you have no idea what that is the link is in the show notes it's essentially a extension of this podcast and it's really an experiment in a lot of what we talk about here which is you know trying to feel creatively fulfilled within the overwhelming chaos of just you know existing as a human being on planet earth so here is part one of my conversation with nada and I, again, just really happy it happened. I had a really big reaction to your book and spending time with you and then now spending the day with you so far. 
I'm really happy that your work exists and that I get to know you. We were talking about, I've had this interesting experience where because of the fact that anybody can have a podcast, I have gotten to talk to people whose work has been really meaningful to me and sometimes become friends with them. And it's all, all very odd, but I'm feel both about you. So I'm so happy we're doing this. Oh my God. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Where do we even begin? When I lived in New York or, or when I was wanting to move there, I would talk on this often about New York and people's thoughts about it. And I realized, and I was telling you a little bit in the non-recorded pre-show about how this program is really it's so clear where my brain was based off of what I'm asking. And you've been asked a lot about LA and living in LA and, and, and why you live here and how that impacts your writing. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I was, I really want to ask you about that, I guess. And also I'm curious, like your thoughts on why people ask you that, right? Like people talk about Didion in California and why is it maybe that, because I think now with the internet, you could do exactly what you do home in Toronto, but it wouldn't be the same thing. Why Why is that? I mean, I think that the literary world still is New York. And so I th I don't know. I think it's, it's almost like exotic to be a literary writer in LA specifically and not necessarily a screenwriter. Just I think people are interested in what the hell is going on here, which is, <laughs> you know, like I just went to New York as a part of my book tour. And I wish that I could be a New York person, but my nervous system is just incompatible. I just feel so overstimulated there. And I also I feel the presence of a literary world, which in some ways is really great and inspiring. But then in other ways, it can feel a little bit claustrophobic. And I think for me, LA felt like the beginning of my life and who I understand myself to be. Before that, I just sort of felt like I was existing. I was so young too. I, you know, I was in my 20s. And I moved here when I was 27. And it felt like things really started happening. And I started participating in life more, which just lends itself to having interesting and strange experiences. So for me, LA plays such a big part in this book, it's the setting where life started happening to me. Did you feel an identity to a place or did you want to move west? How did you end up here? Yeah, I always had something for LA and it was sort of indescribable. And I'm actually really grateful that in in a lot of ways, like the thing that I want is so clear for me. I know a lot of people struggle with like, is this what I should be doing? Is this where I should be living? But for whatever reason, which I, I think about fate or something. I'm like, I remember visiting when I was 21 and thinking I will live here and I have no idea how, but one day I will. And then just kind of putting it in the back of my mind. And I never really had a connection to Toronto. I, I sort of always felt out of place there. Like I had spent my early 20s living in San Diego for about four years. And then a lot of those friends ended up moving to LA. And so I was back in Toronto for my mid-20s just to kind of make money. I got this job. And you know how like a city just does not suit you? 
Like I remember recently going, there's like this website where it's like your astrology determ- determining where like your... Oh, astrocartography. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I couldn't even read it. But I was like, it can't be Toronto. It has to be the West Coast. <laughs> because there is something in my body that just does not feel at home there. Yeah. So, but I know that that's specific to me. It's It's like... It's not an issue with the city. Obviously, it's such a fun city to go visit and there is so much happening there. But for me at a certain point in my life, it it unfortunately correlated with like me being really depressed and like lost. So LA, not only aesthetically and culturally was so inspiring to me, but it also provided me with this kind of blank slate where I could reinvent myself and construct a new identity that was like unencumbered by baggage in the past and who I was. So I st- I still have a kind of romance about LA as an outsider who has slept here for nine years. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I mean, I've been here for like two seconds compared to that, but I, I love it here so much. And coming from, I have a close friend who grew up in Orange County and they'll never understand like the scraping of um, ice off your car, you know, and just no. like, there's something about the, the weather to it, of course. And why did you come here when you were 21? Cause I think that's so interesting when I, the furthest West I had been was like maybe Chicago. And I think you see New York more. And like you were saying with the literary world, world like obviously there's Tinseltown and Hollywood, but I didn't really know this was an option, but I feel similarly and similarly grateful of like, oh, I just want to figure out a way to live here forever. I really, I'm really grateful. Every It's like vacation every day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so what was that trip like when you were 21? Did you know that? Why were you here? Yeah, I'm realizing now that I think I was actually probably more like 19. I was living in San Diego by the time I was, or Florida. I don't know. It's very confusing. <laughs> This is how you know you're old, where you're like, when was that? Yeah, I had, I remember last semester of university, I was interning at Universal Music and I was actually supposed to be in New York for this internship at Seventeen Magazine, but then whatever, it didn't happen. And I just remember feeling, yeah, partially the weather, which is the most boring reason to leave a place, but it's true. And I just needed to get out. And I also was obsessed with music and a lot of my friends were in bands. And so I had an opportunity to go on Warp Tour 2008. So embarrassing. But the company was like, you have to live in Florida for a bit first before you come out on tour and work for us. So I actually... I didn't even go to my graduation, my university graduation. I just... Where'd you go to school? Guelph Humber, which means nothing to anyone. My husband always makes fun of me. He thinks I'm making up a word. He's like, that's not a real school. I was a journalism major. It's... Yeah. Me too. It was like such a meaningless degree. Um, (laughs) But... Is that in Toronto? That was in Toronto. Yeah. And I was so itching to get out anywhere it just happened to be Florida. And then from Florida, I got, I was on Warp Tour, met some people. They were like, come work in San Diego. It was all nonprofit stuff. That was just my in. And I went and I fell in love with Southern California more, uh, spent a lot more time in LA. And I don't know what it was. I think my parents are Croatian. They moved back to Croatia. And I. it is very similar to like the Mediterranean and the mountains and the beach. So maybe it's just in my blood, you know? 
Or your astrocartography. Or my astro. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think I I similarly, I I am from a college town and cold place and went to school at the college where I grew up and just wanted to leave so, so much. We're around a a similar age and I think coming from similar places and, and I think just in general, but especially our generation, so much of it has been out of our control of like, okay, we have this vague idea of maybe what we want to do, but what I'm doing now as my job, like wasn't something I could even conceive of studying. So I studied journalism as well, you know, and you're just trying to go with your interests and trying to figure it out. But again, like so much of it is out of our control and just even where we end up to where we live. And it's so nice when you strike something that you want to stick with. So I, I think that's, that's really cool. Did you growing up loving music? I, were you, you know, kind of wanting to be the kid in almost famous and, and write about music? Was that your, or playing music? Yeah. I mean, I grew up playing piano, but in the way that everyone does until like eighth grade. And then they're like, forget this. I think, yeah, my piano teacher fired me for, I was becoming a bratty teen and was like, just not interested (laughs) anymore. Um, So no, I was always a fan. I was in love with boys with swoopy haircuts and (laughs) side bangs. And so, yeah. And I had a music blog and yeah, just wanted to be near it and around it. And I still do. I kind of like my ignorance allows for, I don't know, more magical experience, I guess. Like my husband's a musician and a lot of my friends are, and I don't think they can experience it the way that I do. And there is something to not intimately knowing something that you can engage with it on another level that is equally as real you know it's like when you take mushrooms and you are able to kind of (laughs) look at a plant without the memory of like what a plant is and kind of the form and you're just engaging on like a more visceral pre-verbal way that's sort of how I want to continue to like engage in music I guess you you said something in the creative independent that that stuck with me which was about how writing is a spiritual barometer for you and the degree to which you can write is directly related to the degree to which you can sit with yourself. And that really landed because it's much easier to do anything when you have a positive relationship to yourself and the opposite is true with procrastinating. Even before coming to writing, like, how has your relationship with yourself been through through all of these years of working in music and moving back to Toronto? Like, I'm curious how that's evolved because it seems like you're in a, a really great place of your shadow is integrated and in your work and you're always trying to grow. And where was your self-worth all those years? I think my 20s were pretty difficult because I was going through a lot that I didn't have the language for. And now it just feels like the the language of therapy is so in our culture and I think it's a net positive because I wish I kind of knew <laughs> that I was depressed uh <laughs> but I just thought my personality sucked or or you know like I I just wasn't it just felt like such a deficiency and so I got into 
Buddhism in my mid twenties, early twenties. Um, listened to a lot of Ram Dass and Alan Watts. And how'd you discover Buddhism? Um, I w- like I had a, f- um, I-, I was always reading kind of weird esoteric philosophical books and knew about Deepak Chopra and kind of all of those. But uh, my first boyfriend got me into Ram Dass and he was like, he put on this. I think it was Experiments in Truth, this like lecture, this tape that was like six hours long or something. We just listened to it on this road trip. And by the end, I was like, I am converted. <laughs> um, it really, yeah, it changed my life and continues to. And growing is this like upward spiral where you're going to keep hitting the same patterns and like the same issues, but from a higher vantage point, hopefully. And then... You know, if you can work through it enough, you can shed it. But until then, some of those knots are pretty tight. So you'll keep revisiting them. And so when I think about even just the idea that I'm in any way of evolved now, I, I don't feel that way at all. I feel like I possess a lot more knowledge about myself and how I operate. And in many ways, there's been more of like an ease mentally for me, but um, that just introduces a whole new set of problems as we kind of like get older and have to deal with new stuff. So I I get really skeptical of anyone who's like, and I've healed. Mm -hmm. There's something really seductive about like the podcast format or books. um, And I've fallen for it where you can kind of lay out this narrative given hindsight of where you've been to where you are now and give people tips on how to live. But uh, I think that reality in life is just a lot messier than that, where I can acknowledge that I've grown in a lot of ways, but I have days where I still feel just as fucked up. So I'm always, I always want to tell people that I don't even know. And I might go back on everything that I said, and I just want to allow for, for that to be okay mm-hmm. too. That great Ram Dass quote, right? Where doesn't he say all methods are traps? Right. And I, I think about that often of anything in spirituality or wellness culture or like, like think of a diet, right? It's like someone in that book had to, like the, the truth is that everybody's bodies are different and like what worked for one person like probably won't work for another person and like who knows but you can't really say that in a book or if you're going to be a self-help guru or whatever you have to kind of go all in and be like this is the method this is what it is or there's just nothing really there but that's so damaging I think for people like me who I'm so malleable that if you tell me how you did it I just I think we're all sort of searching for an answer. We're all sort of searching for something. And I would love for there to be a formula. I would love for you to tell me that like exactly what you do every day to write a book so I could emulate it and do it. But that's not how it, how it works. And I think that distrust of anyone who is so rigid in their take on something is, is healthy to have that. What, what you talk about often with getting into spirituality and your your take on Buddhism. When I was preparing for this, I was listening to you talk about growing up Catholic, which is something I've been thinking about more lately. Did you read that article in the New York Times about, what do you think about that, like the resurgence of, of Catholicism? 
right now? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, culture just kind of goes super progressive and then kind of, it's just always like the extreme opposite of what, yeah, what we've just kind of gone through. And some people, it's kind of punk almost now or transgressive to be Catholic. I wonder how many people believe in it fully or if they're just sort of looking for a structure to exist within like a paradigm that kind of does have a clear-cut answer for everything i think there's a lot of cool stuff in catholicism like there's a bunch of saints and it's really like it was in that article they said that it was camp like it was because <laughs> they're dressed in these costumes and i don't know really like committed to the bit i'm yeah. So there's a lot. The aesthetic is cool. It's very, a lot of the stuff about demons. Like I understand why people are trying it on or I have an appreciation for it. And I'm glad that my parents are still, that's the way that they can communicate with the divine or feel like they have a sense of community with others. It's a shared language in the same way that cult, different cultures are. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm less like judgmental about it. Uh, I remember when I was younger and I felt so convicted about you know, whatever it was like you just start idealistic and you're searching and there are worse things, I guess, to be into uh, than, you know, Sunday mass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I brought it up because you were talking about in another interview I read or listened to, that's all jumbled together in my brain, but you were saying, you know, the problem with, or not the problem, the ability to believe that a bread turns into body is similar to, you You thought perhaps because you grew up with that in your brain of like, that was something that was so around us and Maybe that's why it's easier to go all in believing kind of anything. Yeah, it is. There is like a weird pipeline from Catholicism to more esoteric, mystical stuff. And I mean, I know nothing and feel very dumb all the time, but like historically, like a lot of Christianity was rooted in mysticism, right? And it yeah. was. So it, it kind of makes sense that, uh, yeah, if you can believe in the Holy Trinity or yeah, the Bible as like a real historical document, then throw in the aliens or, you know, right. or, or even angels. I kind of, there is like a weird crossover with new age. And I feel like a lot of new age teachers like will invoke Jesus as like a great spiritual teacher, yeah. maybe not the only one, but among the buffet. Yeah. I think when I was younger, I was so, I'm curious if you had this because, did you go to Catholic school too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it was so ingrained in me, like a language where I wasn't really sure if I believed it or not when I was there. I think I was like, I should, I don't know if I do, unclear. And then when I found things I liked more and wanted to believe in my 20s, there was still a part of me that wouldn't allow me to go all in on this whatever other thought that I wanted to have ownership of because I think there was a little part of me that was like, well, you know, you're going to go to hell. Like either, mm -hmm. there was just a, and I think that's maybe gone away now. I think I don't have that. Did you have any of that of like, I can't really get into Buddhism or Ram Dass because 
you know, turns out hell. Like, totally. Mass. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how I'm only realizing now how much I internalized it because I would often say that I, I experienced Catholicism in another language. It wasn't as emotional, uh, especially it's so ritualistic and like material to, to you go through the motions of like a sacrament or, you know, all the sitting, standing and kneeling and all that stuff. Whereas from what I've heard of a lot of my friends, especially for some reason in Southern California who grew up with Christianity yes, very, proper, yeah. they seem like they were more brainwashed by it as kids and there was a lot more you know just even the idea of like having a personal relationship with god and uh i didn't really get that as much it was sort of like you do the mass you go home no one really talks about it that much i think i still internalized like feeling this inherent badness that i was like uniquely bad as a kid i don't know how much of that was Religion, it probably partly was, but, you know, the ripple effects of whatever my friends who experienced American Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, they are, they still are affected by it yeah. in, in a lot of ways. And it makes me really sad for them. Totally. That, that's something that I've been, I'm happy to talk to you about this, even though our Catholic was different based off of the language thing. But I think what we have with it is so much more similar than my friends who grew up really Christian because I have a, I have a friend and we were talking last night about this exact thing. And, and someone we were talking to was saying that she grew up with no religion. And it was, my question was like, Oh, did it fuck you up in the same way that ours did to us? And, and, I was thinking about it and I, I put us, my friend who grew up really Christian and myself in the same category. And I was like, oh, it's so not like what he has is so different and so much more ingrained and was promised this savior that he's not getting and was promised all, you know, all of these things that the personal relationships, like you, you really articulated that. And exactly like we would do it. It was all so, so much pomp and circumstance that it was almost so bizarre that like you said we would do it and then we would go home and not talk about it and and where theirs i think was so ingrained in their life and in their everyday and in their language with less pop and circumstance and less ritual that that is a lot harder to to let go of i think yeah and i think i look at catholicism similar to judaism where it they're not really trying to get you to convert as much. Uh, they don't really care. And yeah. uh, with Christianity, there it always felt like this um, insecurity in the like overzealousness of like, no, we need you to buy into this because you need to reinforce our reality back to us. But to me, that feels like such fragile foundation. Like my husband would tell me about these insane summer camps that he went to where it was like all the funnest games and toys yeah. and they knew exactly how to get them excited but then like you know a friend of mine his mom when he was a kid brought him this book that is insane and it was all about how masturbating is a sin <laughs> i mean just to ha just to have that conversation with your young son feels 
abusive. I mean, I, I don't know. It just feels weird and perverted. I don't like it's just it, it just wasn't that I think that there was a neglectful aspect of <laughs> the religion that I grew up in where it's like, did you do the thing? Okay, you, mm-hmm. you can go have yeah, pizza exactly. now. Nobody cares. <laughs> and when I, you know, was going to mass less and participating less when I was in my later teens, it wasn't a huge deal. Right. It was fine, you know? Yeah, it was almost to be expected, you know? I think in my, you, it's like, oh, you go as a kid and then there are the couple kids who stay and have their family and are in and there's a lot of them that leave and it just is sort of, how it is. But as you were talking, and I want to talk about writing and, and process, and I'm, I'm so fascinated by that. But we were talking a little bit before we started re- recording about writing rituals. And I'm having this conversation with you realizing ways that it is actually within me, because even as you said that, it's like, oh, did we do the thing? Okay, we move on. I kind of live my life that way now, where it's like, that's why I, f- I came in here so off today, because Usually it's like I kind of do my seven things in the morning and it's like I do the same very Jerry Seinfeld like workout I do every day and I walk abnormally long time during the day and if I get my things in at this time and and so I'm like am I am I sort of doing my own dogma in a very I don't know do you feel that yeah but I think that those are necessary anchors for people who live in like a really weird ambiguous way like we do it. <clears throat> you know, to not have a regular structure, you can feel really untethered. Yeah. So you kind of have to create that container for yourself. Um, I know I do. And I no longer look at it as a bad thing. I, I definitely have OCD tendencies. And I used to get so down on myself for, you know, why do I have to do this to feel like I can do this other thing? And now I'm like, well, whatever works, it seems to work and that's fine. And I'm I'm never going to get to this like perfect version of myself that just has absolutely yeah. no hangups or neuroses. Like, how do I just accept at a certain point? It's like, I mean, I'm addicted to working on myself, obviously, but I also need to kind of just like cut myself some slack and, and be like, well, that's the thing that works. Everyone kind of has their like coping mechanism with uh, life and it's so easy to kind of judge people for whatever it is. I, I just like have such a more open and, and spacious understanding of just the fact that everyone suffers and everyone's kind of going through their own thing. And I'm very much like less trying to impose my worldview, especially on like my loved ones. I used to like send self-help books that lit me up, you know, that, to my parents who it's like they don't the, the context is just totally missing for them. And it's also not effective. And also, look at yourself. Do you still do that breathing exercise yourself? Because like once you do, and it's become your new, like your new thing, then maybe go and tell everyone. But I used to just take one breath work class, tell everyone about it, and then completely abandon it myself. You know, and so now I'm a little bit more like, man, whatever works for you. Like, even if it's a vice, I keep thinking now, <laughs> this is like me getting into my like dark night of the soul where I'm back writing a book, but I'm just forgiving of like even the bad habits. We're all going to die. Yeah, totally. Like I look at someone who's like, oh, I do my, I wake up, I do my cold plunge and then my meditate and and I go, yeah, well, you too will die. Yeah. And so will I. And so it's this constant 
negotiating between pleasure in the moment and enjoying my life versus the punishing discipline for a later reward. That's sort of what I'm, I'm constantly thinking about. Like, when do I let loose versus when do I go hard and um, yeah, discipline myself? I don't know. It's a spectrum. And I I think I, that's something I really appreciate about you and about your work. And I was in, in preparing for this, which like, I, I, I hope you come back for the novel and we get to have many more recorded and non-recorded conversations because it was such a delight. And in that, I listened to a conversation with you and your sister and she was saying that you've always, to her, always been a writer and, and, and always were writing. And I think that's a very writerly way to, to move through the world, to have that view of not necessarily like everything is copy, but more of a, for me, and, and, you know, this is interesting because you write fiction currently and your book is a book of of fiction short stories which i love and you're you're working on a novel which i want to talk about at length but one thing i really appreciate about you there are many but one is your your openness and and i heard you say recently in an interview you were talking about the success of your book and the response to your book and people who have seen it and and written about it and and you were so grounded because you you mentioned that even showing to your parents like the new york times it's a big deal like you kind of had to explain that to them and you were very not only open about showing how hard you worked on the on the book launch it was very important to you to show how much grit and persistence and how much you tried because i think we live in a world where like trying is kind of uncool being mysterious is cool and being this sort of unknown with social media, especially it's like you also have said about that. It's like, it is cooler to not do it. And it is cooler to, I wrestle with this all the time and to, to be at a certain point I've had to accept I am warm. I am not cool. I literally have recorded my conversations with people and it started from exactly to your point trying so hard to ask questions very humbly to people I admired, like, do you have the answer for me? Like, what are the five things you do when you wake up in the morning? I will try all of them. And I have an ability to, you know, maybe it's my OCD or Catholicism, or maybe we all have it, to go there and to be very dogmatic about things. And recently i say that all the time like we're all gonna die like i want to enjoy my life while i'm here because that's actually more productive and i've been less productive in times where i've been so dogmatic so i think that openness is really important and and with you writing as a kid you know something in bad thoughts these characters i love them all so much like (laughs) i really love them and i know that they're not and you said this about them, that they're terrible people and they do terrible things, but all of us do, right? Like, I think we're all kind of garbage people. I didn't even watch this television program, but the this was a show on Netflix a couple of years ago called The Politician. And I remember in the trailer for The Politician, the one of the characters says maybe to Gwyneth Paltrow, or maybe Gwyneth Paltrow says this, Unclear. Again, I didn't watch it, but this stuck with me. (laughs) And it was just this line of like, you don't have to be a good person. You just have to do good things. 
And I think that's what we're all doing. You know, we're, we're trying to fit into society's structure of not breaking the law is like part of it. But then there's also like being of service in, in a way, not for an altruistic purpose, but because, or at least for me, like I'm not wanting to delight my friends or be helpful or be useful for them, really. It's because I feel actually better when I do. And I feel like that gives me some momentum and it allows for connection. So all of that to say with your writing, you know, growing up as a kid, was it an outlet for you to put some of those thoughts? Because by your openness with explaining what it took to have this book be released as it was, is very similar to the concept of bad thoughts, which is allowing something to see the light that you had in your brain. And with fiction, you're able to create the narrative. But when when someone's writing a, a personal essay or when someone's being so open about their life, I think there's a part of me where I want to be a writer, right? And I have that in my brain. I always say I'm like Francis Howard. It's like I'm a writer who doesn't really do it, you know? But I do it every day. I try to. I'm just not doing it in the way that I, I want to. But when something happens, I, I think of that that quote that's like, make good art. Like something bad happens, I can put that somewhere. And I think with with fiction, it's like, it doesn't have to be real and factual. You're able to create it however you need to create it. So when you were a kid, were you were you doing that with your experiences? Were you putting them somewhere? Were you always writing fiction at that point? Or did you journal back then? Like, what was your sister talking about? I went home to visit my family and I think it was March, dead of winter. And my sister was telling me about this time that we had gone to Croatia together, just us two, which we had done a few times when we were kids. My parents, it's so weird. It was like, as long as it was with Croatians, we, we could stay out and drink until like 3 a.m. And they would literally let us go uh, for like five weeks alone as teenagers to Croatia. And just, and I didn't even remember this trip. I think I was like maybe 12 and like she had to show me, she was like, you really don't remember the full trip. And I, it's scary how much of how bad my memory is and like how I don't remember a lot of my childhood. So I found this, um, it was like one of those little uh, certificate like awards for, I think it was like, I don't even know, third grade. See, I no idea, but it was uh, for writing like the most creative stories. And I don't remember writing anything. And I really, the journals that I had as a teen were like the very classic, like <laughs> weird uh, eating disorder journals of like, today I ate one grape and a cracker and insane. Just like, and then just kind of, whatever if I had a crush or something but I really didn't keep a journal in that in that way I wasn't like observing the world uh by writing it down but I was really like my f my first entry point was writing about music that's sort of what I can remember is like when I really started taking it seriously I was just I was just using it to write about my friends that I I just loved their art so much um and I only started writing fiction when I was like 26 or 27 so I was I feel like I was a bit late to that because I it took it took me a while to give myself permission to be the one who was an artist because I had spent so many years sort of just happily following my friends around and celebrating their stuff and and I still don't really know how I happened upon it or why I 
I did it. Yeah, I don't know. To your point of like narrativizing life, it is a sort of useful, I don't want to say like defense mechanism, but to take something and think, well, I can make some use of this. I can make it funny later. Like I even was at the post office two days ago and it was just, you know, it's been like one million degrees in LA and there was just me and two other people. And there was this woman who you just know the person's going to be weird from the start. And she's just like trying to engage with you. And I just was not having it. And I was just standing in line and she kept, she would just say like, uh, if anything happens to me, like be a neighbor. And I was like, so confused. I was like, what? And what she was trying to say was if I pass out, then like help me. And she started panting really dramatically. And it just was like, she's like this like older woman who just was like dying for attention in any way. And those are my least favorite people. But also in that moment, I was like, you actually love this and you want her to do something crazier because you're going to tell all your friends about this afterwards. So she slid onto the floor and was just (laughs) like laying with her legs splayed out on the floor and so this guy with a stroller and his baby like comes in and he's like, are you okay? And she was just like, yeah, I'm just like really hot, you know, and just kept going. And I was like, my whole being wants to leave this uh, building as fast as I can once I mail this thing. <laughs> but now I'll forever think about her. So it's, it's yeah, coming across just bizarre characters or if you're at a house party in LA and someone's being excruciatingly arrogant or whatever you're you're clocking everything i would be nothing without these people you know i need them we all agree to live in society together and and perform when necessary to just coexist and when people defy that i'm horrified but equally obsessed with how were you raised like what happened why do you think it's okay to act this way and maybe part of me wants to embody these more delusional characters because it is in me somewhere but i i refuse to (laughs) express it Uh, i'll just do it later in writing so you've talked about shadow and integrating your shadow and i think these stories are in your writing it seems like you're someone who has your shadow quite integrated because you're able to put it in your art and I heard you say in another interview and and maybe you can you can explain this of how when you think about something bad it actually means you're not going to do it. Can you explain that? Yeah. Again, this is just paraphrased from some podcast. I'll never know. This is a uh, podcast <laughs> paraphrasing of thing I heard I just speak in podcast, podcast references. <laughs> yeah, just the instinct that we all have to, if you look over, if you're on like a rooftop and you look over and you're like, I could jump. Or if you're driving, you think I could just drive over the overpass and kill myself. And these are sort of frightening thoughts that come out of nowhere and it's the exact opposite that you want obviously but it's your brain's way of playing out this worst case scenario uh to make sure that you don't do it which i find interesting people in my life who have ocd and tourette's and it's a very concentrated version of that too where it's like you don't want to have the thought Therefore, you must have it. You just in a loop. Mm -hmm. It it sort of it haunts you. Uh, And yeah, I am in a big Jungian shadow season. I'm like, I just bought a bunch of a bunch more books about 
the shadow. And it's been such a useful framework for how to understand myself and, and others. And again, has really like helped me become more compassionate because hearing something really terrible that a friend does, I can sort of recontextualize it as this person, and maybe it is reductive and and not the full story, but to me, it rings true. It's like you repress this part of yourself for so long and it is whatever you resist persists. And when you kind of like deny these darker parts of your psyche, which we all possess, it dominates your subconscious, which is a far more dangerous place for it to roam around (laughs) because you can't see it and your conscious mind really isn't running the show. And so you'll have these people, you know, classically midlife crisis or whatever it is where they'll do something that's quote unquote out of character, but really it's just the shadow that's running amok and, and, and is refusing to be hidden and, and then comes out in these really destructive ways. And so knowing that we have these parts of ourselves, like how do we integrate it in a healthier way, everything from like sports to war are ways that humans have been processing and dealing with their shadow sides dreams you know Mm -hmm. there's this quote of young where it's like i'd rather be whole than good i sort of think that will be the central focus of a lot of my work is Mm -hmm. just kind of marrying those two or the many parts of yourself that are incongruous with how you see yourself or the image that you're trying to kind of present to the world yeah because it's all in there have you done much internal family systems ifs i bought the book and yeah. read it so yes i have no <laughs> i did yeah i went i went to a retreat where we did the family psychodrama stuff yeah yeah it's really useful and it actually you know it, it it was thought of you probably know it's from someone helping families with eating disorders like when someone has a eating disorder in the family they'll, they're like let me talk to just the dad and the brother and then like these different parts of ourselves. And I think reading your book, one of the first, I have a whole list here of just quotes and parts that I'm dying to talk to you about. And the first one I wrote down was about in the, in the first story in the book, my new life, you are talking about your best friend character, Mona in this story and you being the narrator is, is talking about how Mona is the witness proof that I'm not someone else's projection. Mm-hmm. I loved that line so much. And the way that you write about that, it's, I, I guess I don't have this part written down, but I do have the author in front of me. So maybe I could just ask you, but you, you say something of like, when you let out essentially something that you did to another person, to your Mona. Hopefully we all have a Mona or someone we can be real with. It's so freeing. Like there's this, did you ever read Debbie Ford's book about shadow? I think you'd really like it, but there's an analogy in there, which is honestly why this whole program is called Let It Out because I I wrote this book about journaling because, you know, I think there is something to, you know, Julia Cameron's artist way or, you know, even just admitting it to yourself is, is useful. And then you can hopefully next step therapist, your Mona, whatever. And, but the, in, in Debbie Ford's book, she gives the analogy of what you just said of, of the beach ball, right? If you have a beach ball and you're trying to push it underwater, that takes so much energy and eventually it's going to come up in this really like 
intense way with a splash and like, or you could just let it out and then it's here and you don't have to manage it anymore. And it doesn't, you can use that energy elsewhere. And so, you know, I hope in this show we can have a real moment where we take off, you know, what we're trying to hide. And of course we're aware that it's being recorded and, and same with live existing in the, in the world often, but having just, I think we both and hopefully everyone really appreciates those moments where you're like, oh God, you were just a person with me and have such an aversion to the performative nature of like, you clocked it in that woman. It like, that wasn't, it'd be a very different scene in the post office if she had been like just handling her day and then fainted and like that, you would have had a very different reaction to someone who mm -hmm. was very wanting to be seen, which is also like heartbreaking in a, in a way. Totally. So, can you talk about what I heard you talk about before, which is about your love for taking off the the script and actually being human beings with each other? I think promoting your book and, and being now more of a public person than you were even before July, right? Like, how have you wrestled with being true and, and having some honesty, but also having to kind of say the same few bits? like any big thing you don't know how you're going to feel until you do it so I didn't know what the book launch was going to feel like having this thing that you kind of are working on alone kind of in secret for like three years which kind of forces you into a state of isolation where you're not really being seen and putting yourself out there which obviously writing fiction is is another kind of mask you can wear to kind of be more honest under the guise of fiction. It just allows for it's, I couldn't, I couldn't write nonfiction. I, I find my friends who write memoirs to be so brave. My life also isn't that interesting, but <laughs> in the lead up to the book launch, I started experiencing again, weird psychosomatic stuff because I'm not really a crier, but I started spontaneously just tears were just like, leak out of my face and it was like this mourning period of like this thing will no longer just be mine and it'll be out in the world and I don't know what's coming for me and I also was just working so hard and I was getting these deep tissue massages because I was saying before how I I work in a very non-ergonomic way so I was really messing up my wrists <laughs> and it's so embarrassing to go to a, a masseuse who knows exactly she just probably thinks I'm like on my phone too much or something because she knew exactly where my pain was. I had no idea how afraid I was of taking up space and, and being seen. And, you know, I had this whole book tour planned and my book launch and it was just too overwhelming to just like have a book come out into the world. But then you're suddenly thrust into like public spaces where it's not like I had a ton of practice. So my first few interviews... I was so nervous and it sucks, but it's kind of the only way I had to like learn by doing and get comfortable with it in real time in front of people. Of course, I'd love to go back and redo all of it because I do feel like I've, I've grown, but I, I was like, oh my God, am I, do I have like serious anxiety? Cause it was just a muscle that you don't work out. So you have no idea how you're going to be in front of audiences. I'm perfectly comfortable doing readings because it's like, planned out mm -hmm. but when you're sitting in front of everyone is there for you and somebody asks you a question 
and if you're nervous, you just can't access homeostasis. You, you just sort of, I feel like I fumbled a lot. But now I'm at the point where I accept myself as I, you know, I am imperfect. I think for so long, I would listen to podcasts or read interviews where everyone just sounded so media trained and I wanted to be that. But now I don't care. <laughs> and I'll just say things and it's really freeing. It's not like I l listen to it afterwards. But yeah, I think I just always kind of want to dismantle the performance because I found it so disempowering for me to keep reading stories about artists who seemingly are just perfect and just are and won't give you any kind of vulnerability and aspire to that because there is this part of me that's like, I can work that hard too. I can be that like masochistic about my art and, and, and I don't think that that's a healthy thing to aspire to. So I tried to at least just tell my version of it where it was extremely difficult. I didn't know what I was doing most of the time. I kind of had to figure it out on my own. This is what came of it. And it was the best that I could do at the time. And I'll keep showing up and I'll keep learning and figuring it out. But um, I'm, I will never be the person that wakes up at five in the morning and, you know, has that sort of machine like output. And that is okay, too. And I don't idealize that lifestyle anyway. It sounds hard. All right, interrupting this episode to tell you about this week's sponsor, which is Sprout Living. Sprout Living is bringing us this season. I love them so much. If you aren't familiar with Sprout Living, buckle up. I'm going to tell you about them right now. They're plant-based protein powders, and you probably know... You know, I, I'd say I'm pretty active. I like to walk around this uh, metropolis that I live in that mostly people drive in. And, you know, I'm kind of known as a pedestrian. And these products keep me going. And they are really delicious. I enjoy the way they taste, as well as the ingredients in them. There's not, you know, fake marketing ingredients. These are actually quality stuff we got in here and you know we don't have additives we don't have gums we don't have thickeners we don't have natural flavoring and i learned that you know what it actually matters because natural flavor is not so natural after all google it i sure did so instead sprout living uses real powerful superfoods like adaptogens nootropics which is great because it's a multifunctional product right it's a multitasking food really it's something that you know you want protein great you go there for the protein you know you also get nootropics you also get energy you know what else convenience cost savings and of course less waste for the planet and you know what they care i care their epic protein collagen blend for example they have many, many others. They have this mindful matcha, you know, but we're just gonna go with the collagen blend for a quick second here. It helps to boost your own body's natural production of collagen. That's pretty cool. They also have one that helps with clarity and memory and focus. Clearly, I need that. If you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you'll understand why. Truly, they're incredible. And I'm not kidding when I say they're free of the things you don't want them to have, like GMOs and perhaps soy and they're third-party tested. I just really love them. And I, I saw on their Instagram this week, they're actually at Erwan. 
And if you live here in LA, you probably know it. It's in their smoothies there. If you don't live in LA, maybe you've heard about their smoothies, but Sprout has a, a smoothie right now. And my, my friend Katie and Chris got it because they are they have a membership and they get this free smoothie and it had it in it. And they loved it. They loved the smoothie with Sprout. And, you know, I make it at home because I have Sprout. I'm lucky enough to have this protein powder and I drink it and I really, really enjoy it. They have a bunch of different flavors, something for everybody here. You're not going to get bored with the flavors because there's just truly so many chocolate maca that tastes like chocolate milk they have a coffee one talk about a uh, multifunctional situation and listen they even have a unflavored mix and get this doesn't have to go in a smoothie you can pop it in a baked good you know me i'm making cakes for everybody listen check them out use the code let it out for 20 percent off your order again that's let it out for 20 percent off your order thank you so much sprout living we love you we're grateful for you we're gonna support you and we're gonna use the code i wanted to to ask you about cringing over old work you've spoken about that and also looking at something that you did with some gratitude of like, well, I had to do that to learn something. I know you don't listen to your interviews after, but I can imagine, especially doing so many in a concentrated period and having so much media in a concentrated period and putting something that you worked really hard on out and wanting it to be seen and wrestling with those two, two things at the same time, you had a wonderful conversation about cancel culture. And I really liked what you said about that. Is that one of the reasons that you're worried? Like, do you have that in the back of your head to be like part of your whole way of being to, to my point, I was clunkily trying to make before of everyone has to have a take or you're just you're nothing if you're trying to cater to everybody you have to have a take and I think the you know we were just chatting before this like what podcast we like like we like when people are themselves and you're so distinctly yourself and to do that you've said this before too there's a risk to that there's a risk to having a take especially now and how do you wrestle with that in your brain, I, I really admire you. You're obviously very articulate, but you're also, you know, you said you look at your friends who write memoir as brave, like you're kind of forced to be as brave as them. I think to, to me, it seems more brave, almost your version of what you have to do to promote the book, right? Like you kind of have to write a memoir a little bit, like we're, I'm forcing you to tell your life story off the cuff right now, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, you have to also have that bravery by being a public person to get people to see your fiction. So how do you wrestle with that in your brain? It's difficult. I don't really worry too much about, I don't know, being canceled. I'm in my 30s. I have a really good group of friends. My intentions are always pure. I think I'm not really in it for like the shock value of just getting a rise out of people. And to be honest, I don't really have strong opinions about anything because I'm in that phase of my life where I'm like, and I could be proven wrong. You know, I'm sort of open to being wrong about 
everything. I marvel at people who are so convicted and they'll just, that's the hill they'll die on. And it's just seems like what, why, who cares? I think because that's the energy I'm putting into it so far, no one's said anything and I write books. So by uh, design, it's pretty niche. I'm getting to like the right audiences. It seems like people who write me, they get it and they enjoy it. And my work is even though it sounds like if you're just hearing me talk about it, that I'm like wrestling with these really dark things, it's like all fairly absurdist and like funny and lighthearted. So I think it would be different if, if I wrote a different book that was really trying to prove a point. But I think my point is that being human is hard and we're all sort of a mystery unto ourselves. For me, I think the challenge is holding on to a cohesive self. I- I'm amazed at people who just have this persona and it's so them because I'm still learning who that is through the writing and through the work. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't really. Well, now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I really loved what you said about cancel culture in general of like how it's essentially like the pendulum. Was, same with what you were saying about Catholicism, like everyone will be kind of canceled, like everyone. And that's the truth, like just by having a presence at all, like we've all we've all done good and bad things and the more people know the more people see and i think back to the shadow thing everything is a projection like your experience of reality is ultimately subjective that's the loneliest thing about being alive is you are imprinting your past your history your desires your fears everything about your identity onto a given situation, you know, when you walk into a room and you're like, the vibes are off, it's really like your vibes probably are off, right? And so knowing this, the thing, it's like a useful tool to pay attention to what really stirs you up and gets you really angry or agitated in another person. That is usually something that you are denying in yourself that you would never admit to, right? Obviously, your conscious mind is like, I would never do that. And and that's the point. I think it's like, go to where, where like the heat is for you. We all have those people, whether they're like celebrities or just people in our lives. So it's like, there's something about them that really irks me. Usually it's like the stuff we're not willing to deal with in ourselves mm-hmm. that makes us so nervous that it would ever come out or that we would ever exhibit those behaviors and it's just instructive in gossip or 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 being judgmental it's loosened that for me so much too where now I'm like oh well yeah I don't even want to say like what celebrity annoys me but like this bitch it, you know it's mm-hmm. like oh, that's my own shit. That's 100%. Where is it in me? You know, and the opposite is true. For jealousy of like taking it and being like, I want, yeah. Yeah. And, and, And the thing that you, the thing about shadow is it's not, it's not all bad. And so the thing that you sort of idolize and worship in other people is a quality that you possess that you really haven't cultivated yet. And that's been instructive for me where I'll have like certain writers where I just am so obsessed with their work and the way that they've kind of navigated their careers. And it's been kind of like this North star for me to, to be like, okay, what is it about 
them that I really do see in myself that I'm not willing to like identify or, or embody because we're just as afraid of, um, you know, being big and successful as we are failing. Anything that kind of like changes your current reality, however terrible it is, is really threatening to the ego, right? And so that's something that I had to confront too with the book and the promo and the press and all of that stuff. I was like, where am I afraid of maybe this being successful? And, and how do I have to kind of rewrite the story of me being this underdog, right? I've just, yeah, I didn't get an MFA. And I kind of always sort of felt like other and in a way, how can I create a, a an image of myself that's big enough to contain and I, I can be successful too, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's difficult because all change is, is fairly painful, so. When I first understood that about whenever I see someone that I'm feeling envious, you know, it, it, to be honest, this is a really... This is a really, here we go. This is like an interesting moment because I was having an interesting experience preparing for this, right? Because when I was younger, when I started this podcast, I was 22 and I would talk to mostly women that I really admired. At the time, it's it's not the same things that I exactly wanted to be doing. But at the time, it was like, these were these people who... I didn't feel jealous of because they were 10 years older than me. I was like, that's my role model. You know, like instead I was just able to be like, cool, I, I'm going to get there someday too, or not exactly that, but it was this, I was able to unpack their process and puncture something parasocial and talk to them. Right. But now the older I've gotten, I'm often talking to people younger than me around my same age, older than me which is great. And having an experience of people doing something similar to me or not necessarily even similar, but just having a level of success that like I may never get to or just isn't in the cards for me or they're going left, I'll go right. It's so beautiful to take something like jealousy and be able to be like, oh, that just means there's something within because that's an uncomfortable feeling if you don't have this reframe, which is that just means there's something within me unawakened and how can I awaken it or use it or whatever. But sometimes like you're unable to logistically time-wise money, like whatever, like you, you can't do it right now. So then it just goes back to being a bummer, you know? What I really love about your work and your openness is like, I just really like you so much. And I think honestly, not a like, If I liked your book and we had all these mutual friends and you were like an asshole or like not nice or like mean or something, it would be such a bummer. And I would be really challenging for me to you've exceeded expectations. You're incredible (laughs) and like lovely, but it would be really hard for me to like your novel sounds incredible. And like it was like, I cannot wait to read it. And I loved your your book of short stories, and I hope everyone gets themselves a hard copy and pre-orders the second they can your your novel. But it would be really hard to enjoy. So I mean, I guess it's kind of the thing about can you like Woody Allen movies or whatever. And and I think your essay that you wrote recently around thresholds and Quella, yeah. Can, can you talk about that? Because I think there's that is maybe related to this because I really identified as like, I'm a mentee with my notebook. And, and now I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm like in my 30s. I got to like get it. You know what I mean? So I'm, I when I read that essay, I was having a, a interesting reaction to it. That is 
has prolonged myself into, you know, preparing for this interview. But Mm -hmm. yeah, can you talk about Threshold and that? Yeah, I wrote this essay for Harper's Bazaar about the Puella. Uh, It's a Jungian archetype. It's the female counterpart to Peter Pan, uh, who we know, you know, more commonly is like maybe a fuck boy, sort of the arrested development of men who really don't grow up. And we know a lot about them, but I was reading this Jungian book and they had made a brief mention of the Puella. And when I read about her, I just, it was just this instant recognition of something. It just put language to how I have always sort of felt and really kind of became this in hindsight organizing principle for my book. I didn't really, I didn't write the stories with the intention of kind of animating this archetype throughout, but it just happened that way, which is kind of like the best way for something to kind of come up as organically after the fact. Uh, But it really is, you know, women who find themselves uh, more childlike and like performers and, um, you know, it's, it's, it goes really deep. I, I wish I could have written a lot more, but there was like such a limit on the word count. I could write a whole book on the Puella. I'm obsessed with reading about her. In a lot of ways, she is resistant to, you know, a threshold in Jungian psychology is sort of these milestones, these markers that we have to move through in order to mature. So more commonly, it's marriage, babies, that kind of thing. And living in LA, it's this timeless space where there's not even seasons. Yeah. So and everyone kind of doesn't age. And a lot of our friends are artists who have these unconventional jobs and people are having babies later. And you're kind of able to exist in this weird liminal space for a while. And you can kind of make a home in the waiting room of life and not quite mature. And I was wrestling with a lot of those feelings and and seeing everyone around me having babies and I was like, I'm baby, like I'm still, <laughs> I'm still young. And I still feel that way, even though I'm married now. Yeah. And I just wanted to look into that. I mean, obviously the foundation of her kind of f- fractured wound is, is, is typically with a father figure who is either absent or, you know, she has like a strained relationship to, which is also a very common thing but what ends up happening is you take this kind of masculine image and 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 it sort of dominates your unconscious and kind of blocks your access to your inner feminine that becomes this sort of aggressor in you like the the inner masculine and it has a lot of redeeming qualities too a lot of these women are confident charming creative uh disciplined You know, there's a lot that I love about feeling this way, but also how do I get in touch with the feminine because there is an imbalance. And I'm, as I get older, I think I'm, I'm learning more and more how, how to be more in my feminine, but without denying like this part of me, you know, it's so, it's kind of easy to just diagnose it and and say, well, a mental (laughs) condition or something. It just is. And I, I think that's why I love like Jungian psychology because even this having archetypes and knowing that it it sort of is this thing that exists 
among people. It's like any other thing, personality types or whatever. But just the fact that we can all be organized in like more or less this like handful of patterns to me feels like we all belong to something. We're just like these different expressions of it in our own kind of messed up ways. But like, it's kind of cool to be like, well, I'm a this and you're a, you're the same. We're not all so, so often I feel so lonely in my predicament and like no one could ever relate. So for me, it just felt liberating to just have a word and kind of own it, but also find ways to push through yeah, I, I I relate to that too. I I often say that my one of my really close friends here during the thick of the pandemic got really into the Enneagram. I find all of that stuff very useful. You know, my mom works in HR, so did the Myers Briggs on me when I was like nine, and like I love astrology and I'm weirdly oddly like human design makes me feel articulated more than any of the other programs and I like it as much as the next guy is my point but when she got so involved in it and she was like dropping $80 on you know I don't think that I, this is my number and like really in, into it and I was like getting I was a little bit like what is it? And I was like, you know what I think this all really comes down to everyone wants to be seen and recognized for who we really are and we're also terrified of being seen and misunderstood. And so having this to be like, oh, I'm a Virgo, and that means something to someone is a shared language. And so really shared, it's like, we all just want connection. We're all, you know what it is? We're all the lady in the post office. Really, like mm -hmm. there's a part of us who that like wants someone, if you don't have anyone to see you and notice you that like you're going to have to lay down on the on the floor like a scene yeah. yeah and so i think part of it is is that and then people's level of how much they have to get into their ego and do that is directly related to how much support and and love and connection they have either in their life currently or had as a child or one of the parts that i i wrote down my favorite story in in bad thoughts is watch me which is pretty much in the middle, right? Like mm -hmm. that. There's this line that I wrote down that it, it was something like the narrator's talking about this person that they're they're dating who's a musician and they say he doesn't even come from money, but his parents love him, which makes everything seem possible, like a music career and home ownership. And <laughs> when I read that, I I like I remember where you know you remember where you are when you like have a hear a song or something. I can even do it with podcasts oddly where I'm like I was on that corner or whatever. I have that with that line because it really hit me hard. <laughs> I don't really even know <laughs> what else I want to say about it. But I think it is sort of related to the identity of the Puella, which I'm having so much trouble saying into the microphone, because it's it's this like confidence of audacity really which something else you another line I wrote down from one of the stories was a, a character was talking about her mom and how she, she asked like whenever I ask about my mom she just tells me what's going on with other people and that one another one I, I where I stopped in my tracks because I think related it's like Julia Cameron speaking of shadow like talks about shadow artists right or like having a shadow career where you're like pulling the focus away because you you don't feel the identity with with what you want to be doing and also like wanting to stay in the anticipation of, of the waiting room which you have a, a story that 
mostly covers that. So do you feel like you've crossed a threshold at this point? Like, did you, do you relate to that character in, in the, in the book? Yeah, I do feel like I crossed a threshold just to discover there's just more thresholds. <laughs> but I had, I did have a brief moment where I, I felt like I was clenching for three years and I just unclenched. That was really satisfying for one day or something. I think having like the, the language of threshold and that's its own ritual, it is helpful for kind of, I keep wanting to use like literary uh, cheesy metaphors. I'm like that book ends something. That's the end of a chapter. <laughs> Hate myself. Um. <laughs> Do you feel like you've crossed a, a threshold? In some ways, yes, but then I still feel like I have so much more to prove. I think the first book is not only are you writing a book, but you're becoming a writer. So there's just, it's, there's so much to it. It's so much heavier because as you're writing it, you have no idea if anyone will ever read it. You don't know if it's going to sell. To muster the courage to show up for yourself with that level of uncertainty for that long it feels like inhuman that that's even the way that we go about any kind of art form. But having done that and gone through that without the delusional confidence that it was going to work out for me, um, in fact, just mostly feeling the opposite, I do feel a lightness that I just could not have felt um, with my first one, having knowing that I, I get a second book, knowing that that's a certainty knowing that I had done it, it does make me feel more capable. I think the whole thing of life is just trusting yourself more that you can do the thing that feels impossible. But with it comes a new kind of self-consciousness. I think of expectations that I put on myself and that I kind of feel from the world. And yeah, and and, and feeling like the sort of urgency to like follow it up and but then also giving myself space to kind of not rush it. Um, and it'll always be that way. But I do, I do feel like the first one is the hardest. Sorry to anyone who is <laughs> writing their first book right now. But it sucks. It sucks to be in that <laughs> space. And I am so glad to be done with that part. Yeah. The level of being seen, that part will be done with the next one. And, and a, a theme throughout your books, and you talk about the power of self-mythologizing. And I heard you, we've, we've sort of talked about this already, but you talk about breaking holes in performance and trying to get to our, our insides. That's kind of the, what Gramdas says, like God and drag, like the good parts inside of us and essentially want to talk about bodies and like physicality of things because there's quite a bit of that throughout these stories and you said something about feeling like your insides match your outsides I think that's something for me that I kept going back to when I was reading your Harper's article about Puella of I don't feel like that even now. I kept feeling like I would feel like that when I got older, but I think trying to make my body physically smaller for so much of my life is sort of related to that. And just knowing when you, we all have more eyes on us. If you're doing art and you have to self-mythologize, like when you said that you feel like you're, 
outsides match your insides. When did you start to feel like that? And what helped you to, to do that? Partly just time passing and growing up, right? Like when I was younger, I just had no sense of like, like I would wear clothes and be like, this isn't me. And this isn't my, like inside, I kind of always felt like a 60 year old man, you know, and in this young, I was very confused. And so I think, yeah, the life project is kind of closing that gap and feeling like you are representing yourself and you're more comfortable in yourself. And being in my 30s has just been so much better. Uh, obviously, I still have so many moments where I don't feel like I'm accurately representing myself and I'm betraying myself. I look in my closet and I just, I'm like, who was the person who bought the, like, I hate everything. I'm like, how do I, I just feel like a stranger to myself when I look at the clothes that I have purchased and was so sure of in the moment. <laughs> and then I, you know, I have friends who are dressed so cool, like my friend Angelica, she just always looks incredible. And my best friend, Andrea, same. It's I get mad. I can't, I can't even like, <laughs> can't even like stand next to them. And I've gone to the point now where I think like some people express themselves through their bodies more and through their clothing. And that's their art. And I think because I gave myself this space through writing to really express myself exactly how I wanted to, that was the missing piece for me. I think I was trying to do it with clothes and in all the ways that you try to present a self, but it wasn't until I really allowed myself this time to, to write a book and, and feel like, sure, there's plenty of things I'd like to change about the book now. That's just the reality of writing anything at all, but I can stand behind it. And I feel like it captured some kind of energy of who I have been over the last few years. And so in that sense, I'm proud and I'm proud of myself. And I think whether it's good or bad, I need to earn my own trust. I've never been the person that's like, I can do it. I have to prove it to myself and earn it. And now I feel like, okay, well, I did it. So now I believe that I can do it kind of thing. So it, yeah, I think writing and just kind of coming into my own more helped me feel, I wouldn't say embodied necessarily, because that is something that I it's a very classic Puella thing of feeling kind of disembodied and especially being a little bit more in my head mm -hmm. and what I do. I'm in my head a lot. I'm still working on that relationship to my body. Yeah. And maybe that's why I sort of still hate all my clothes and never feel like I, I just don't know what I'm doing there. Um, <laughs> but at least I have one safe space to kind of exist within. And that's something that I have total control over. And so maybe that's it. Maybe it is I feel like I lost a lot of years to being so preoccupied with my body and making it small and, you know, all of those things that it feels like a waste. Like I wasted those years. I could have been developing some hobbies or any kind of personality. <laughs> so I almost resent the fixation with the body. And I, and I still go through phases where I have to learn everything about skincare and do all the things. But I am okay, but it's not anything that I did it's more the people that are around me i'm just in a better place in my life where i just care less about and i have a lot of compassion for that younger version of myself who did especially with dating like just fixate on 
the stupidest shit that no one is, mm-hmm. no one even is paying attention to. But really, it's it comes down to like that's what you can control. Yeah, and a lot of it is control. And so maybe I've just sort of outsourced that to writing, or like if I weren't doing this, I always say like I can either dedicate my life to being hot or writing another book. Like I can't do both. I'm amazed at people who can do both. <laughs> you are doing to me. Well, I mean, yeah, I know. I, I'm not saying that. I'm, I know. Yeah, but just sort of like all, doing all the things. Yeah. I'm amazed that people can eat well or even just eat. Like the fact that we have to eat food every day and figure out, like buy it and like cut it up. It's wild. And like eat it and then clean up. Like just that, I'm like, how is that not everyone's entire day? Yeah. How are people doing that plus a job plus like going to a gym? Children. Yeah. It's, it's so insane to me. I, I yeah, I don't feel like a, a real adult person because I <laughs> sometimes I can just get a bare minimum done in a day. Well, it's so interesting because I mean, it's it's all a spectrum because I'm like, God, if you looked at, at me, like I, I have a lot of, I live in like basically a dorm room, you know, like I have a studio apartment and, and you mentioned this, you know, of, of you not having an MFA and feeling like an underdog. I relate so much to what you were saying about the frustration with how much focus you spent on control in your body. And, and I think so many of us have that as, as women and that's diet culture and that's wellness culture that's been hijacked by diet culture, the whole thing. And, you know, my thing is like, God, I spent, I, I too, you know, didn't grow up reading the classics and didn't have my, my taste and and music and my reading and all of that. You know, I, I didn't get that as, as a kid from, from my family in the Midwest. And my mom worked really, really hard just to like take care of me. And, and I am so grateful and lucky that through friends and people I've met after that, I've been able to read and, and develop, you know, watch movies of people that have suggested them and, and develop a, a taste. However, I feel so behind because I spent all of my 20s like focused on one stupid thing, which is like the margins in those journals that you mentioned, honestly. And that's yeah. really boring. My therapist says I think my feelings instead of feel them in my body. And it makes me really sad that that time is is lost but it's also like okay move forward but the confidence I, there was this fresh air episode where the writer and actress Lena Waithe talks about I think she was about to get married at the time and how she was talking to Terry Gross about like I feel like I can be more comfortable walking into a writer's room and tossing out ideas because I don't care if they think that I'm stupid because I have someone at home who like loves me and thinks I'm the greatest person in the world. And at the time I was dating someone and I felt that, and I think it is kind of destabilizing. It seems like you've, you have created that for yourself. So do you feel like there's a, a confidence that comes from a support system that you've crafted for yourself? Definitely. And I almost at this point take it for granted that I've had a best friend for like almost 15 years now because I don't know what it's like for people who don't have, <laughs> you know, I'm surrounded by artists and my husband's a musician and his band, you know, they they treat me like a little sister, but they're so proud of me. And I was able to kind of watch them and how they 
have sustained this crazy long career and what it takes. And so I have all of these models around me, even though they're not doing the thing that I'm doing. It's like, it's like bolstered my, yeah, confidence. And you, you need some kind of support system to do this because it's too lonely and scary otherwise. And it could be a writer's group. It could be a whole, a number of things, but to just feel so comfortable with someone. Even the other day, like my dream scenario is when I hang out with my husband and my best friend at the same time. Those days to me, I can feel like- Does she I'm live like, here? She lives in Topanga, so she'll come out for just random stuff. And she's a painter and she's so talented. And I've learned so much from her about art and you know, everything, honestly, but just to have a shorthand with someone that's known you. And similarly with my husband, like I just, there's no greater feeling than being in their, both of their company. I want us to all live together, even though she <laughs> has a husband. I mean, we should all just live in the same house together because yeah, we, we spent the weekend doing all sorts of stuff, going to parties and pool parties and stuff. And I just was, I was so at ease. So I am really grateful for that because I feel the absence of it when I'm sitting alone at my desk and it's just me and my thoughts, but at least I have them to kind of sort of soften the the blow of like whatever, you know, internal storm is is going on for me. Yeah. I think it's important to know that you need that as is, it's important to know you've said 9 to 2 is like your window for writing. Like it's just as important as that. W- with that, managing your nervous system is crucial to writing it as, as we've talked about, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you're having a bad day or you wake up or I don't know, for me, the week before my period, I like so garbage, like how do you pivot? Like if you're like, all right, well, I actually have to exist in this world or I actually have this deadline or on the other end, if you could just put it till tomorrow, like walk me through, you know, what you do when you're, when you're down to try to bring yourself back up. Okay. That was part one of my conversation with writer Nada Alec. If you haven't read her book, Bad Thoughts, go read it. The Harper's essay that we spoke about will be linked in the show notes and you might want to read that too. And then come back next week because I take questions from some mutual friends of ours and ask her the rapid fire questions that you know, you maybe love that I usually ask people, including her lessons on romantic relationships. We talk about friendship. We talk about how she met her husband. We talk about the connections that have been made between her and other writers. We talk about Eve Babbitts and Joan Didion. And she's really candid about how hard she works and how hard she worked to promote the book. And we talk about conversation as an art on considering the audience, how to make people feel included or how she does that. We talk about AI and the metaverse and what she's curious about and her novel research. And it, yeah, come back. If you liked this, you'll love that. And again, in process is happening. If you want to know more about it, the link is in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. And I will talk to you next week with more of Nada. And if you need anything, you know where to find me. Okay, bye-bye.